0: way to this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 26, 2016, this is episode 1835 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Tuesday. That means this is the show that you guys chose in the voting for the, uh, July shows. And this will wrap up our audience chosen July shows. And we'll move into August. Remember, you can still vote on those. And, uh, I'm not even sure how the voting's going. I haven't checked in the last couple of days, but it is neck and neck on some of those topics. Today we're going to talk about getting ready for fall gardening. Yes, fall gardening. And, uh, I mean, I generally talk about this subject about every other year uh, on, on average, I think. Not every year, but every other year I'll, I'll do a show on it in the July-August time frame. And I kind of always point out the irony about when I when I bring this subject up. And it is indeed when you need to be thinking about it and even starting on it in some places and in some ways. But today, it's going to be over 100 degrees in a lot of the nation. This is our toughest time of year here, right here in central Texas. Our grass is turning brown, and other thing. The only other things that really thrive are uh, snakes, lizards, grasshoppers, and things that eat grasshoppers. I mean, that's really all that's really happy right now. Shade is the number one commodity if you're outside right now. For for me, for the ducks, for the dogs, for everyone. I mean, I went outside just before I started recording to check on the ducks, and they're all you know in little groups uh, throughout the area where their pools are today, you know, hanging out in the shade and taking a dip, eating some grasshoppers, and going back in the shade. And it just seems kind of crazy, you know, when you start talking about fall right now. Even as a boy in Pennsylvania, my grandfather referred to the weeks that we're coming into, not quite where we are yet, but like from the second week of August until like the last week of August, he called them dog days. And what he meant by dog days is that when you had an outside dog, you should leave them alone during that time of year. Just don't bother them because they might be so irritable that they might bite you from being irritable about the heat. So it does seem like an odd time to discuss... You know, fall gardening. But let me put you in touch with reality today. Even though for me, or even for me, uh, where it's it's so hot that yesterday, you know, I was looking out the door and a couple hobbits were on the other side of my fence and they, they tossed a ring into my yard and it burst into flames and they seemed like they had accomplished their mission and they left. Even here, um, it is only 107 days from my average first frost date. 107 days which is a little more than three months. It's not that long. And that's not fall. That's my first frost date, right? Um, if you live in central Pennsylvania, you're only looking at like 76 days. 76 days to your first frost date. You want me to really freak you out? As of today, there's only 121 days of Thanksgiving and 152 days to Christmas. It's 152 days to Christmas right now. In short, despite the heat and long summer days, fall is coming, and it's coming fast. In fact, Right now, we're only 58 days from September 22nd. What, what big deal is it when we're in September 22nd, you ask, 58 days from now? That would be the fall equinox. That's actually the first official day of fall. We're 58 days. We're less than two months from the first official day of fall. Now, here in Texas, it'll still be pretty warm about that time, but the, uh, the back of the oppressive summer will be broken by then. Uh, it is every year. And in the mornings, it'll be cooler, and in the evenings, it'll be cooler, even if you have those hot days. In other words, in my September, uh, late September, I get to feel like Pennsylvania's summer. It's just the reality. But fall's coming, and it's going to come so fast you won't believe it. You'll be making arrangements with family for Thanksgiving before you can believe it. You'll be dressing your kids up in, in costumes if you have kids of that age and taking them to trick-or-treat before you realize it. So if you're going to have a fall garden this year, now's the time to start thinking about exactly how that's going to work, or if you're going to be taking your garden into fall for as long as possible, or if you're going to be getting the garden, put to bed in fall so it's ready to go next spring, all of those things we're going to talk about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, 1835, and since all of this takes place right here in Texas this year, I kind of want to read them all, but I won't. I'm going to read the one in the middle. Because uh, that was the easiest thing to do, is just pick the one in the middle. The first one today on the TSP Wiki from Alex Shrugged is and So It Begins, The Texas Revolution. And I have Come and Take It, The Battle of Gonzales. And I have The Siege of Bay Air, which is actually San Antonio. In other news, though, before we read a main segment, Mark Twain is born in a village of a 100 people. Florida, Missouri, most famous resident, will become one of the world's favorite authors. There's no identity crisis there. Florida is a town in Missouri, in addition to also a state. Democracy in America, Volume 1, is published. A French aristocrat seeks to understand how America works. Quote, The greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. I believe that same author wrote something about the greatness of America existing within our churches as well. I, I believe I remember that from some tattered frame of history in my mind. And Samuel Colt patents his single-barreled pistol in England. Next year he will receive his U.S. patent, and he will be it will be called the Colt Patterson. A cylinder rotates to align the barrel with each pull out of the hammer, You must partially disassemble the gun to reload, though. As I said, technology is moving at a breakneck pace through the 1800s. It'll kind of blow you away how fast it comes from here, and it'll make you think of modern times as we move on. Anyway, you know the phrase, come and take it? How about this, come and take it, the Battle of Gonzales. In happier days, the Mexican government had bestowed a small cannon upon the town of Gonzales for defense against Indians. The people of Gonzales have never shown a bit of disloyalty, And Empresino Green DeWitt has been a strong supporter of Mexico. But things turn sour after some Mexican soldiers take over the store of a local merchant and viciously beat local militiamen. Jesse McCoy, who tries to straighten out the misunderstanding, having having a town with lingering bad feelings toward Mexican troops and armed with a cannon seems like a bad idea. So the commander at San Antonio sends a few soldiers to request not demand the cannon back. Cannon? What cannon? After a lot of fooling around, the commander sends Lieutenant Castaneda with 100 soldiers to retrieve the cannon, without violence, if at all possible. In the meantime, Gonzales' defenders call for help. Texian volunteers arrive to find a very reasonable Mexican force on the other side of the river. The Texian volunteers have not come all this way to just sit around. Under the cover of darkness, they cross the river. Shots are fired. A Texian falls from his mount and gets up with a bloody nose. The Texians in Gonzales raise the banner that reads, Come and take it, with an image of a cannon on it. The Gonzales cannon is fired once, and the Mexican force withdraws, with maybe one or two soldiers killed and without the cannon. As battles go, go, it is insignificant, but as a first strike for liberty, it is a bonanza. My take by Alex Shrugged. Those are the bare bones of it, but there's a lot of interesting side stories that go along with the battle. A doctor named Lancelot Smithers... Her, I wonder if that's where Smithers from uh, uh, The Simpsons, where that name comes from. Anyway, Lancelot Smithers, heard of the coming confrontation, and rode across Texas to negotiate peace, but he was arrested by Lieutenant Castaneda. As it turned out, Smithers was needed for translating, and after some back and forth, it was clear that both sides favored the Constitution of 1824. But since the Mexican army was under the orders of Santa Ana, the Texians would not capitulate. The cannon itself did, didn't come with cannonballs, so they collected as much scrap metal as they could find and stuffed it in the barrel. Could this possibly be an effective weapon? According to an episode of Mythbusters, yes, it could, but only at shorter ranges. The Mexican with, army withdrew because the lieutenant's order stipulated he was not to use force to retrieve the cannon. Um, yeah, you know, my take by Jack in this one is it's interesting to actually look at how large Texas was and how large the Mexican empire was at this time, ranging all the way to, well, Canada, in a weird kind of squiggly way. And it's it's interesting that had the Mexican government actually honored its own constitution, it's quite likely that the United States would look a lot different than it does today. And that's kind of a lesson for all governments to like, oh, I don't know, Honor your Constitution. See, I think as much as I'm for a stateless society, I am for if there is to be a state, it should at least be run under its own rules. And maybe, maybe, just freaking maybe, our elected officials should crack open their employee handbook once a year. Your employee handbook, if you're an elected official, would be the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of your state if you are a state representative. I'm just saying. With that, let's uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day, and then we'll get into the main topic of today's show. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at BobWellsNursery.com today. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Alright, so like I was saying in the beginning of the show, it it is very hot right now and yesterday I I watched with great anticipation. I was out, you know, running some sprinklers and watering, uh, and having to interrupt the show actually, right? This time of year I've got to do a lot of watering, uh, for a lot of the trees that are under establishment. And, uh, I only have so many hours in a day and I have three acres in one well. So I, I have to water an area for a good 30 to 45 minutes. So what I'll often do, is I'll set a timer, and then when it goes off, I just pause the recording if I'm in the middle of the day, and I run out and move the water to the next location or turn on the next zone or whatever it is if I pre-install irrigation. And it was coming that time, and I looked down, and I had 30 seconds to go, so it wouldn't go off. I just went ahead and paused it. And uh, I heard boom, big thunder clap, you know, and I looked out, and I saw, you know, standing 12,000 feet high, these huge clouds to our north you know, maybe 10, 15 miles away, and I, <sighs> and I, whoa, that's great, I went outside, and instead of moving the water, I just shut it off, and I pulled up Wonder Map, you know, the Wonder uh, Chan, uh, the weather uh, weather app application, Wonder Map, uh, from Weather Underground, and I looked at big, giant, red clouds coming towards me, and I was... So excited and so happy as I continued to record yesterday's show. And as I sat here at the microphone, I had to keep my, my attitude up because as I was watching both out my window and on the radar in real time, the clouds began to just fall apart. And by the time they got here, though it poured in Azel just about 10 miles north of me, it was completely gone. The clouds just vanished and went away like a fart in the wind. And so today as I walked, you know, through parts of the grass where I don't have trees planted and therefore I don't irrigate, it's just like crunchy, crackly, you know, death is what it seems like. And I I know that as soon as the the rains come in, in the fall or even we get some now, a lot of that Bermuda grass will just a magic. It's like magic. It just comes back, you know, and it just turns green and starts growing again. And I know that the land is actually okay, but it's a hard time of year. It's why... Dorothy and I have decided we simply will not take vacations in this time of year anymore because even when we have people that are really dedicated to doing a job here, it takes so much of being on top of it for these couple months. And it does seem like a, a strange time to talk about getting ready for fall gardens. But it's really actually an important time, and I'll explain why. You know those, those numbers I gave you like to your first frost date? If you're planning on growing something in the fall, that can't handle frost and you need to get it started you need to start it indoors or under shade in a greenhouse or something now so that you can have it in the ground and have it grow long enough to harvest it it's it's the reverse of spring instead of trying to get ahead of the game so you can get it out in the ground as soon as there's no more danger of frost you're trying to beat the frost on the other side on the other hand there's a lot of crops that do really well through the frost But when it gets really cold and the days get really short, they just go into like a stasis. A lot of your your coal crops, your greens, your kales, your spinaches, your lettuces, that's what they do. They don't die even. They'll get snow on them and survive. But you kind of get this window of opportunity to harvest them. And they're beautiful to harvest during the frost. But it's the heavy freezes where they start to get some damage or shut down. right? So those you also have to start looking at the timing of when to get them into the ground. And if you are thinking, well, I'm going to put a garden in for the fall and you don't have beds yet, as much as it sucks, right now is when you got to be out there breaking ground, putting in raised beds, doing whatever it is. Because I'll tell you the truth, the best thing to do when you put in a new garden, if you, especially if you bring in fill dirt or you mix compost in or something like that, is to not immediately plant it. To maybe give it a good kick of some uh, dried molasses, something to get the uh, biological activity up. Hit it with some compost tea, maybe some comfru- comfrey tea, maybe some garret juice and things like that. You know, organic fertilizers that not only feed the plants but feed the soil life because that's what we really want to do. And those things need some time. And a good thing to do right now might be to get those beds in and 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 put a, a covering over, like a tarp, over it and then shade the tarp so it's not baked in the sun, and let that ground begin to develop, the worms begin to show up, all of that stuff, so that when you're ready to plant it, let's say at the end of August, beginning of September, when the brutalest part of the heat has passed, you've actually got the biological activity up. That's something a lot of people miss. It's the same thing in the spring. It's actually much more difficult in the spring, especially in cooler climates. Uh, Even our climate, as hot as it gets here, you know, hobbits destroying rings in my backyard be damned, we get some pretty harsh winters. We didn't this winter. This was the mildest winter I can remember. But, I mean, I've had winters here in Texas, and I, I it, it adds to the question of why do I live here sometimes. I feel that way, right? Dorothy and I feel that way. Right now, we look at each other and go, you know, if, if my father-in-law wasn't in a you know, memory care facility and my son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren weren't right here, and we we had all the resources we have right now. We could live anywhere we want to in the world. Would we choose this place? And we both look at each other and honestly say no. And the winners make you feel that way because you're like, okay, if I'm gonna have a winter like this, I can go somewhere in a northern climate where I don't have a summer like that. So it it is one of those times where we we look at things and and, and start saying, does this make sense for us? But I digress. When it comes to fall gardening. It does have to be that time. And again, it's like the spring, but the advantage is you have the soil warm already, so your biological activity will start up um, right away. Now, I know a lot of you maybe won't actually garden in the fall. You'll do what I call garden into fall, and then you will put your beds to sleep. So let's talk a little bit about what you need to be thinking about if you're doing that. As you get in to harvesting the last crops of the year, your heavy harvest, um, you should be putting your soil amendments in then. Not waiting till spring to do it. This is when you want to be adding your biochar, your composted manure, your green sand, your other amendments. Because like I just said, and it's kind of why I let off with it, the soil's warm, and there's a lot of opportunity for the biological life in the soil to kind of go into a big uptick. And, you know, then you can look at something like either just a heavy mulch layer, uh, or a cover crop, or a tarp. Even you can tarp your beds until spring, once you've gotten the last of your crops harvested for the year. But you've fed the soil. And that biological life is gonna go into a huge upswing, so that even though it's gonna go very dormant in the coldest part of the winter, if you say keep it tarped, into your spring, until you're ready to plant and you use something like a dark colored tarp, like black or brown, your, your soil under there is going to warm much more quickly than it would otherwise. And that means that when you finally go ahead and pull that tarp away and either mulch or do whatever you're going to do for weed control and plant your plants into it, it's not just you have a nice warm or nice, you know, well formed bed with loose friable soil. You've got biological activity because plants would really prefer to get their nutrients from biologic activity in the soil than they would to get it, you know, kind of spoon fed to them in fertilizer even an organic fertilizer. The best organic fertilizers are just organic amendments. And when I say organic in this case, I mean not USDA organic, but living things, things that either are alive or used to be alive. rotting uh, you know, rotting wood chips so a layer of wood chip slowly rotting into the soil from the bottom up. Uh, turning in leaves. I mean, that's a great thing to be doing in the fall is to rake up all your leaves and instead of throwing them away and getting rid of them, run them over with a lawnmower, spread them onto your garden bed as you're putting it to sleep and till it in. And then, you know, tarp it or mulch it or cover crop it for the, for the winter, whatever it is that you want to do. That's feeding the soil life. And there's a lot of exchanges that go on between a plant and soil life through what's called exudates. And all that means is that if you've ever seen a plant that... Think about it this way. If you see a tree with a wound and sap comes out, that sap is a type of exudate. It's a sugary substance excreted by the plant. In the case of a tree, it's generally as a sap to create a scab on the tree. Um, so the tree can heal over and then re, you know, grow a new covering over it or somehow form a callus so that it can recover. Well, plants and trees can, can cause those types of exudations no matter what's going on. They can just do it through their roots. They can just excrete it. And what they'll do is they'll excrete an exudate that attracts an organism that's, that's waste product or activity creates the nutrient the plant wants in the most biologically available form possible. And your plants would prefer that. So the healthier, more alive the soil is with the good guys, right, the beneficial nematodes, the protozoas, the beneficial protozoas, the, um, the worms, the, the, the little creatures, the, you know, all of the stuff that's supposed to be down there, the fungi and bacteria, uh, the, the happier your plants are going to be. There's generally all the nutrient necessary in most soil for a plant. It just needs to be available. And the reason we supplement is because it's not always available. So all of those things need to play in to what you're doing. One of the big things I want to talk about though with your, your heavy harvest of your you know, your stuff you've either fall gardened or gardened into fall with, and I'll talk about the difference between that in a minute, is when you are like, okay, this tomato plant is done, it's 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 frosted, it's the top's died back or whatever, or you planted a bed of corn and you're thinking this corn is done, uh, I've, I've harvested it, it's turned brown. Uh, your, your, you know, whatever plants or your peppers are, are done. You know, it's gonna frost in a couple of days. You've picked all the peppers off of them. Resist the temptation to pull them out of the ground. I mean, really, don't, don't do that. Just take a pair of pruners or a scythe or a rice knife and cut them off at the base and leave the roots in there. If you're gonna till leaves or something in like that, then you're gonna end up digging them up some and all, and that's fine. But I would tell you that's not even necessary. If you have a good biological soil life and you wanted to till leaves into your soil, this is what I would do. Cut flush to the ground when you're done for the year all the plants leave the roots in the ground. Take shredded leaves and coat the entire top and then either put a layer of mulch on that uh, or put a tarp over it. And all the little creepy crawlies will make those leaves go right into that soil in a beautiful way and you'll never have to dig anything up. And next year when you pull that tarp off or, or pull back some mulch to dig a hole or you know, cut down a cover crop uh, to plant into it, what you're going to find is that most of that stuff's decayed and gone away. And if it isn't, leave it alone. Just leave it where it is, dig the hole a couple inches over, put your plant in there, and let it continue to rot and feed the soil. If you do that, everything will get better, and it's why we got to start thinking about not just gardening for the fall right now, but gardening for next season as we go into fall. Now, gardening into fall, what I mean by that is I do a lot of that here. Right now, um, about the only vegetables I'm really growing in earnest are um, uh, sweet potatoes, purple Japanese sweet potatoes, and jalapeno peppers. That's really all I felt like I had time to jack with this year. Now, my jalapenos have produced some and they'll produce some more, but they're not real happy right now. They're growing, but peppers actually don't like this heat, right? People think a hot pepper, they like heat. They like warmth, they don't like heat. When you have an established pepper and you move into like September and that photo period begins to decline, what I mean is the day gets shorter, and your temperatures start to get a little bit cooler. Even if it's hot during the day, you start to get those nights where your temperatures dip into the 60s. That's when they go ballistic. That's when they go nuts. And they start really growing, and they just start putting on the peppers. So for me, if the, the problem with the, that is I kind of have to put them in the spring, limp them through the summer to get them to fall at a large enough size. If I put little bitty pepper plants out in September, they're never going to make a really big crop for me You know, by November 10th to November 20th when I'm going to get my first frost. So I have to plant those with a plan that you know I'm going to have to actually take care of these things um, and not get a lot out of them until September, October, November, but it's worth it. So that's gardening into fall. And then there's other ways like mine's like a misery gardening gardening into fall. In Pennsylvania, when I gardened with my grandfather as a kid, uh, gardening into fall was just it was what you did. It worked. That just meant that you kept everything growing for as long as you could. You kept it alive. If you're going to get a very, very mild frost, you might go out and throw some row covers on or something like that to get them through it and just keep those plants going as late as fall as possible in the fall. We didn't do a lot of planting in, you know, the fall time of year. And I can tell you that it, it makes sense to me now why, as I think about it, looking back at my childhood, my grandparents were subsistence gardeners. They really were. They, everything they planted, everything they grew, was something that you harvested way more than you could use. You gave away some of the surplus, but you stored a lot of it. We harvested corn, blanch it, freeze it on the cob. We'd have half a, a, a chest freezer full of, of silver queen corn. Um, potatoes stored in the basement. Garlic stored in the basement. Onions stored in the basement. Broccoli, blanch and freeze. Peppers, you know, we did, we peppers splitter coming out of our ears, but then we would freeze chopped peppers and my grandmother would use them to make what she called barbecue and what she called chili. And I'll just say, I love my grandmother, but Yankees can't make chili and my grandmother was as Yankee as it came. Uh, they don't really make good barbecue either. Uh, it was more like, uh, what do you call that? Manwich type stuff, like a homemade manwich and it was way too sweet. Uh, but that was a big use of the peppers. And I, I'll, I'll confess being a kid, I'd go out there in the, in the, in the wintertime sometimes, and I'd open up a, a Ziploc bag full of frozen peppers, red and green and yellow, and just grab them, and just eat them like a popsicle. I used to like to eat peppers that way. But that, that's what we grew. We grew dill, but then the dill was mainly so that we could make pickles, and we grew a whole row of cucumbers, and she'd put up, you know, 50 quarts of pickles a year. Beets, same thing, they'd get pickled. So, you know what's missing from all of that? Spinach, chard, lettuce, kale. We just didn't grow that stuff because it didn't store well. And it just seemed like they weren't really interested in that. They didn't eat a lot of salads. They had a lot of vegetables and meat. That was kind of vegetables, meat, potatoes, and corn. So, I had to figure out a lot of this fall stuff myself because some of the best stuff to... Actually, grow for fall harvest is your leaf crops, and we'll talk about those in a bit. Um, I want to go a little bit about new new site establishment right now. If I was going to be planting a garden in September, I would be building those beds now if they weren't already uh, existing. I would I would actually say that this weekend I would be outside in the heat, you know, maybe enjoying a beer and some music while I'm doing it, but I would be busting butt and building uh, a garden bed right now. Because for all of the stuff I said to happen that's that's kind of how much time you have right You're looking at a month, thirty days for you to get it done, get that soil mixed, amended whatever, and then kind of supercharge it with some life juice, so to speak, and give it some time for it to actually start to come around. So that's what I would be doing and you know you don't want to be planting any kind of a seed crop right now in in most of the country because it's too hot. Some of you live where you can plant. Right now, just fine. You can be putting in uh, a fall crop of peas, you know, like next week if you really want to. But uh, you guys, you got short growing seasons if that's you. So let's talk a little bit about site selection. Um, I think one of the big things with site selection right now is to just kind of come back to some basics on that. And too many people put their gardens too far from their house. So you say, where's the garden? Also, all the way down there in the back, and it's like 150 yards. From the back door, or even if they have a a relatively small yard, it's all the way along the back fence. It's as far away as they can get it. And some small suburban yards, you only have so many places to pick from, anyway. Um, But with larger pieces of land, people tend to put gardens out of the way because they look messy or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Well, what happens then is all the things you should be doing don't get done. All the weeding, all the maintenance, all the upkeep, all the oversight. When something's wrong, you don't see it. Watching for pests. Dealing with the situations as they come forward. You need to locate your garden as close as you can with all other factors considered to where you'll be able to go look at everything. You needs to be in your zone one from a permaculture standpoint. You need to think about your solar aspect. You need to think about your winds. Um, you know, I put my garden where I did in my first house in Arlington because of that's where it could go. It's where it could, a reasonable sized garden could go. But the winds that came, you know, out of the north or the south through there just really just hit it so hard in the in the fall and winter and early spring. So much so that I went out and actually built like half a half wall of plywood uh, with a kind of set up almost like, uh, like you think like you'd build a, uh, what do you call it, a hurdle. Like for hurdlers, the guys that would run, you know, and jump hurdles, like 100-meter hurdles. Kind of something that looked like that with really long legs, really long feet, so they wouldn't get blown over. Um, and a couple feet high, and set them up. And I would set them up there, and my wife would be like, they don't look that good. I'm like, the plants are getting hammered. And I would set them there from like late uh, winter all the way into spring, and then the winds would shift, and for a while in spring, I'd set them on the other side to block the wind that way. Because even if they didn't dry out the beds or whatever, the poor plants would just get beaten to the ground. So if you have a natural wind block, I did in there, then you need to utilize that. Obviously, you need to make sure you get good solar exposure and things like that. And you may find that you might even have some beds that are more your summer beds and some that are more your winter beds. In my climate, if you can find a place with uh, 50% of the day shade and 50% sun, especially 50% early sun and 50% late day shade, you got it made. And while the solar angle will change some in fall, that may not give you like 100% sun, in the winter and the fall and spring and you may want for for those times of year as much sun as you can get. And some of you in other climates may want that all year round. You got to think about all those things with your site selection. But this is really a great time to to get going with this. It really is because if you do it now and start thinking about it now, you can have the plant started you want started, you can have the beds ready that you want ready. And start thinking about also the stuff that you're going to be harvesting in the near term that's going to free up space to plant a short crop before the end of the year. So corn's a perfect example of that. Most of you guys growing corn are either harvesting it now, or will be harvesting it in the next few weeks, or you've already harvested it. Very few of you will be harvesting your corn on September 15th. By then it'll be old and you should have eaten it or preserved it. So if you're growing corn, as you cut that corn... You know, start supercharging that bed, maybe even tarp it for the next few weeks. So cut that, you know, this corn stalks as so close to the ground as you can, so you know, the big stubbles. And uh, go in there and hit it with some garret juice or some, you know, what, whatever you want to amend your soil with. Uh, and then maybe get a big layer, thick layer of mulch and then tarp over it. And then get some plants started And just go plant right in between those corn stalks, which are now beginning to really break down with something like a lettuce or a kale or something like that. So that's you couldn't do that any other time of year because you have to be following a crop from now with that. So any of your crops that are just going to be done, start thinking, or crops that are going to hit the first frost and be done. Peppers get one real frost on them, they're done. So what you can do is, as you know you're coming close to your frost date, put a new layer of mulch around and start planting your little lettuces and stuff in between your peppers where, yeah, they're not getting enough sun. Yes, it's too congested. There's not enough room. So what? Stick them in there now. Stick them in there three or four weeks before that first frost is expected. And when the frost comes and kills your peppers, just reach down with a pair of pruners, prune the pepper off, and open it up for the stuff that's underneath and already established. This is why you have to be thinking about this now, because if you're going to do that, and, and some of you are 50, 60 days away from your frost, you need to be putting those those lettuce plants seed in a little pot somewhere like next month. And next month is only a week away, by the way. And then you'll know, be putting them out at about 20 days of age right around the end of next month so that you're pruning your peppers out at you know somewhere in October and they're kind of taking over. You need to you know work out those dates. Go to Farmer's Almanac, find your first frost date on average, and start working out those things. Um, some other things we need to think about with our, our fall crops, whether we're planting now or we're gardening in the fall, do we want to think about protection or not? Um, it is very easy to protect your crops and keep them going for a few weeks longer. And for me... And I, I'm saying this from gardening in Florida, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Arkansas. Those are those are dramatically different climates. All four of them, very very different. My best production from my plants has always occurred between about September 15th uh, through my through the first minor frosts, right until we get a big freeze. So I'd say from September 15th to our first heavy freeze has always been my best time of year. And so if you could extend a couple weeks of that, you're not just extending a couple weeks, you're extending your best production. It's it's not only when you get the most. To me, it's when the food tastes the best. Yeah, I can get, you know, a couple tomatoes right now, and they're okay. But when you get a tomato that you pick in, like, October here, it's there's something different about it. The peppers are so different. They're thicker-walled. They're sweeter, all of that stuff. So... Protection to me makes a lot of sense. The easiest way I know to protect your garden and to set it up really quickly and cheap is to go to Home Depot and get, or Lowe's or any store like that you have and get half-inch PVC pipe and get some brackets that are big enough to go over that half-inch PVC pipe. This is for those of you that have raised beds and attach them like you know covered wagon greenhouse style across your raised beds bent and take the thickest cheap. Um, painter's clear tarp you can get, put it over that and weight it down with something on all sides and the ends. And then just on, you know, in the mornings, go out and open the ends up. Just roll back the ends. And if you wait late enough in the year to where you're actually, don't do this until you're a week or so away from, you know, expecting, you know, your forecast saying, yeah, we're probably going to get a light frost. Okay. Uh, and have the equipment ready to go. Maybe go out and install the pipes. Uh, Early, a few weeks early, so if something comes, you can just roll out that stuff. Man, just doing that, when you have those frosts where you're getting down to like 30 degrees, almost everything will make it through those. When you start hitting 28 and and getting more of a freeze, um, they generally won't. And at that point, you don't really have to take it all the way off. You can just roll the ends back in the daytime and then lift up sides where you want to harvest and things like that. That's really... Um, Just a a great idea to make the most out of your most productive time of year. Um, This is also really an important time of year to be killing weeds and pulling weeds and looking for your weeds that are perennial weeds or self-receding weeds. If you have uh, aggressive perennial weeds starting to show up, this is the time of year before they go completely dormant, you want to try to get every bit of that root system out. Or as they go dormant, get every bit of that root system out. But you really want to watch the ones that produce seed. And you really want to be eliminating those before they go to seed and dump millions of seeds into your garden and surrounding areas. Make sure you're getting rid of those. And then starting seeds. I've kind of alluded to this now, but a lot of times you want to start your seeds indoors. If you have grow lights or a sunny window or wherever you start your your seeds in in the winter, because it's too damn hot for them to germinate well and it's too hot for them to do well outside, or you want a screen house instead of a greenhouse to do this with. Uh, you know, like a 60% shade cloth, or even higher, depending on where you are, with like a misting irrigation system or something like that. That's what you need to be thinking about. Or you need to be, th- you know, selecting plants from a nursery. You need to be talking to the nurseries that you do business with about will they have fall garden crops, you know, broccoli, uh, cabbage, kale, things like that. If you're going to grow carrots this fall, you need to be thinking about getting them in the ground around September 1st. That's a, like a really great time to get your carrots in the ground for people in my part of the country and, and to the southern extreme anyway. But a lot of the stuff you can actually get, spinach plants, shard plants, beet, well, not beets, um, uh broccoli uh, cauliflower things like that lettuces from nurseries and there's nothing wrong with buying your plants from a nursery but if you're assuming that they're going to have them just cuz they did last year go talk to the them now even the box stores generally the uh you know the Home Depot's the Lowe's the Walmart stuff like that it's not where I prefer to get my plants but they have them right so they're there and uh, usually, even in those big box stores, there's a section manager, and you can find out when they're going to be there. And are you going to be bringing fall vegetable plants in this year? And because if they're not, you need to find out who is, what they plan to bring. And sometimes, if you talk to those guys, and they say, Well, yeah, and you say, Well, are you going to bring broccoli? And you know, oh, we don't usually sell one. You know, if you say, oh, I'll buy a flat, they'll bring in three or four flats and hold one for you, or tell you the day they're going to arrive, because they know they're going to sell. And a lot of that gets made, those decisions get made. At that local individual managerial level, so make sure you're talking to the people you think you're going to get plants for. Uh, let's talk about some great crops to grow uh, this time of year or grow into this time of year. Spinach. Spinach is the crop to grow this time of year. If you can get spinach to grow in the summer, unless you live in like northern Montana or something, it usually sucks, right? It's it's just mealy, it's thin, it's not crisp. It doesn't have flavor. If you have good healthy soil, September to like Christmas in a lot of places, even where it snows and freezes, spinach, especially with a little bit of protection as you get into the snow and freeze, is the best it will ever be. And you get like a little time period there where it's even too cold for spinach, and you get out into like late February, March, and you can start growing it again right up until it gets hot again. And in some years, like we had last year, you could grow it right through. Right, I mean, this year, last year here, we could grow spinach and some of the other crops like chard right through winter with no protection. We got really, really a mild winter last year. year before, not so much. Um, chard, that's another crop I really like to grow. Those are both great cut up and used in salads, but they're both great sauteed. My wife's never been big on uh, sautéed, green sautéed, you know, leaves of any kind, spinach, what have you, um, until recently. So I've gotten her eating all kinds of stuff lately. This this charred thing that I'm doing, and this is just so easy, and it's so absolutely fantastic tasting. You take your big shard leaves, and chard for those that haven't worked with it, it looks almost like it has a celery rib in the center and then a leaf off of it. That large stem is a bit thick so what you do is you kind of cut your leaf off both sides and then lay that to the side then take that and slice it like it's celery and then chop your leaves up and kind of make two piles because you want to cook the stems a little longer you get a skillet and you cook some bacon and you pull the bacon out you chop the bacon up you leave the bacon grease behind Um, then you chop up a couple apples or an apple depending on how much apple you want this into little cubes and you throw those apples into the bacon grease and you cook them until they're soft. And then you throw the, in fact, you throw the, uh, the, the rib, the chopped up chard ribs and the apples in together because they're both pretty hard. You, you cook them until the apples start to get soft. Then you throw the shard leaves in. And they will wilt like that. And you want them out of there while they're still bright green and they've reduced down by about, to about a third of their size. And that won't take any time at all. Kinda toss the bacon grease on them. Throw the cut up bacon back in there to warm. Get it off the heat. That is fantastic. And you know what? You do the same thing with spinach. It's, it's, it's better with shark. It's a little bit tough, a little tougher leaf, a little bit more body to it. But you do the same thing with spinach. It's fantastic. Uh, I've been doing a lot of things with greens lately. Um, arugula, sweet potato greens, all of those things are just awesome. Uh, I talked about making zoodles out of zucchini, so I'll give you a, a quick summer recipe since we're still in summer here. Make zoodles, which you make from zucchini. You get a julienne peeler, and you make a bunch of noodle-like sh- shreds from your zucchini So you get down to the seed core and give the seed core to the, the birds or whatever. And then you salt them. In a colander, you can look this up if you want to see exactly that. You let them sit in the colander for about 30 minutes, and that draws a lot of the moisture out of them. You give them a good rinse, and then you make those like a spaghetti. So you do that like a spaghetti, and then do something like a butter and garlic uh, mix. Then you kind of give a little bit of a saute with that, with some sauteed chicken, let's say, like a chicken spaghetti, or you can do this with you can do it with any meat you want, okay? And then you just throw your arugula in right at the end and wolf the arugula down and serve it like pasta it's fantastic and it's low carb well you could also use summer crop sweet potato leaf so not the ornamental crap you buy for you know landscaping but real sweet potato leaves are edible and the, the leaves from the purple japanese sweet potatoes are fantastic that way so think about things you can do with greens other than just you know Make a big mess of of like boiled greens on a plate with vinegar on it or some crap like that. Uh, Beets, you got the greens, you got the root below ground. Uh, They're a fantastic crop as well. Um, I really like like the golden beets, uh, roasted, you know, instead of just purple beets with purple juice and, you know, that you pickle and make eggs with the juice later. I mean, there's so much more that we could be done, done with beets. And the golden beets are beautiful for that. They have a great leaf. And you can treat the leaf of a beet just like chard because chard actually is a beet. It's just not, not a beet with really an edible tuber. Um, chard, by the way, will often grow two seasons. If you keep cutting it and letting it come back and cutting it and letting it come back in mild climates, you can take chard for two seasons. It'll finally then, it's a We'll send up uh, seed heads and then it's uh, it's time for it to go. Um, this is a time in the fall, like in September, to be planting your garlic. I said we didn't do a lot of fall gardening in Pennsylvania, but I sure as heck planted garlic. So it would be right about now and maybe the next couple of weeks that my grandfather would have had me out in the garden pulling the garlic. Pull the garlic, let it dry, cut the, 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 the greens off it, and i had this big metal rusty grate, I don't know where the hell he got it, that I would put all the garlic on. And it would sit out there and cure, and then I would put it in basically old onion bags and hang it up down in the cellar for him. And I would set aside the best and biggest heads of garlic, a certain number of them. And those would set aside and those would hang down there as well, but in their own little bag. And it would be about September, about the second week of September, a couple of weeks past the first day of dove season, go plant the garlic. And I'd go down to the bed and put just pull the garlic apart and put all those cloves in. And then they would grow right through to the next summer. So, so garlic, not only are we harvesting in early fall, we're replanting that which we're going to replant in early fall. Um, onions and leeks, great time for those. This is not the time to be planting your Fidelia onions and your big onions, but your, your smaller onions and things like that are great winter crops. Broccoli is my favorite cool weather crop in the world. If you don't like broccoli, it's because the people that have been feeding you broccoli do not know how to cook broccoli. Broccoli should not be pale green. It should be bright green. Broccoli should not be so hard, though, that you can't cut it with a fork. If you have bright green broccoli and you can cut it with a fork, you have nailed it. And if you do that saute with some butter, a little bit of cheese, cream sauce, or something like that, broccoli's fantastic. You know where broccoli doesn't belong, guys? Broccoli doesn't belong raw, raw, sitting on a plate next to carrots and celery with ranch dressing. Cause nobody freaking eats it. You know that? And I understand, uh, there's some little rant here, right? When somebody brings a plate like that, they bought it at the supermarket to like a potluck type thing or something, I understand the garlic or the broccoli being there. I totally get it. I totally do, because that's how they set it up and that's how they sell it. Okay, that's fine. But when somebody makes their own and and feels obliged to basically sacrifice broccoli on the altar of feeling good about yourself while nobody eats it, I, I don't. So... Stop doing that unless you actually have a group of people that eat the broccoli raw. Because I don't eat it raw, and most people don't eat it raw. It just looks like you're being healthy. And people will eat maybe one little piece of it when they gorge themselves on holiday snacks to feel like they were healthy. There's there's really no point to it. But broccoli, this is why I love broccoli. I have pictures and video uh, on my YouTube channel of broccoli and one of our harsher winters in Arlington, Texas with ice hanging off the leaves like icicles. And the next day, the sun comes out, it melts, and the leaves have some burn marks, from frost burn on but the plants are still alive, still growing, and producing beautiful heads of broccoli, and then cutting that head, and then having side shoots of the broccoli come up. And that's what I love about broccoli over cauliflower. I don't just like the taste of it better. I like the production better. Um, In Pennsylvania as a kid, I mentioned we were subsistence gardeners. We had uh, our garden rows were 50 feet long by about three and a half feet wide, and we had 50 foot of broccoli plants, 50 foot by two, with them planted at about 18 inches apart. That's a lot of broccoli, and I would go out and cut the heads as they came to, and we'd pretty much we'd get enough of a stagger and enough holdover that most of the, the full size heads would get eaten or given away in in the early summer. And then the shoots would start, and I would be sent down there every other day with a bucket, and I'd come home with a, I'd come back up to the house with a bucket full of broccoli, and my grandmother would put some aside for dinner, and she would steam and freeze the rest, and we ended up again we had four chest freezers, and uh, we'd have you know peppers, broccoli, stuff like that frozen, tear meat. We had two chest freezers full of nothing but deer meat every year by the time hunting season was over. But that was another crop, and because it sends those side shoots up, and you can keep cutting them, if you put in you know a couple dozen plants uh, or more, you can get every other day another full harvest, and that's just something that that you know cauliflower will never do for you. Besides, I think cauliflower sucks. Cabbage. I'm not a huge cabbage eater, but I do like cabbage. It's a great winter crop. It's also a great very early spring crop. I, I have memories of my grandfather, uh, you know, tough old man with his, uh, his blue jean jacket. He had the blue jean jacket with the, like the sheepskin on the inside of it with snow all over him coming in with big heads of cabbage in the early, uh, spring in Pennsylvania. So, um, you can obviously grow that into fall. And it's actually easier to grow into fall and into early winter than it is to start growing early and, and get it, you know, as, a, as an early crop in spring, because you get the size and the momentum on your side. A lot of times these these crops that won't die in a frost, they don't grow really well either, especially when they're little. But if you've gotten them mature, they'll keep going for you. Kale, um, another one of my not a huge fan of uh, crops, but for those that like it, uh, this is the time of year to be growing your kale. Carrots and frankly, almost all root crops, really. Uh, but carrots this time of year, and I'll give you my 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 bang on number one recipe for carrots. It's so deadly simple, and it blows people away when you make it. And I mean, it just doesn't take any work at all. It's gonna sound it's gonna sound preposterous until you try it. You take your carrots, and to make this the best, you want fresh carrots. So you pull them from the ground, you wash them, you cut the tops off, you slice them up, then right, and then they go straight on to the the heat. But you slice your carrots on the bias. Okay, what that means, guys, is it's on an angle, 45 degrees. So you get more surface area and probably about a half inch thick on the bias, and we cut our carrots up. We put them into some aluminum foil. We put a couple tablespoons of butter. We get some fresh sage leaves, not dried sage leaves, fresh sage leaves, two or three fresh sage leaves. We finely chop those with a knife. We don't tear them. We slice them finely with a knife. And we sprinkle the sage leaves on the carrots with the butter. Okay, We get a pinch of sea salt or kosher salt, a couple grinds of cracked black pepper. We fold that foil packet up. We either bake it in the oven or put it on the grill. And the carrots are just softly, just give to the fork. And my God, you'd think you made a five-star side dish. That's all that it is. And any, like, people go putting honey on them and sweeten them up. If you have a good quality carrot, they're plenty sweet. We're not trying to make dessert here, right? That's all that's necessary. The kids will eat them. The adults will eat them. The first time I made this for my buddy Neil Franklin, he called me about a month later. And he was cursing me in the polite British way on the phone. Because he thought I was, he's like, you're holding back, you effer, right? And didn't say effer, he said the F word. And uh, I'm like, what? and I don't know, he doesn't even say about what. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. What what, what are you on about, Neil? And he's like, the, the carrots, the bloody carrots, they didn't come out right. You didn't tell me everything you did. I'm like, so tell me what you did. And like butter, cut on the bias, salt and pepper, fresh sage. Fork. Yeah, that's it. There's nothing. Else. No, they're not the same. And I started thinking about it. I said, Where'd you get your carrots? He's like, The store, you bloody idiot, you know? And I'm like, Oh, well that's why. I'm like, they're not gonna be the same as a carrot pulled out of the ground fifteen minutes before it's cut. It just isn't. Uh, they're not going to be as bright orange, you know, they're not going to be as as, 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 that, that the texture to the tooth and stuff. And eventually, you know, getting organic carrots from like a, a whole foods or something that were looked really fresh, she was able to get a lot closer to the mark with it. But carrots, really a great crop and lettuce and, and frankly, most leaf crops. This is the time of year to be just producing as many salads as you can right up to the end. And there's things you can do. Um, I've got some old videos. I'll see if I can dig them up. But basically all I did was. If you think about the planter boxes that would be like a window box. They don't have to be, but they could be. They're long and thin. Uh I got a couple of those. So for your greenhouse, you get a lettuce seed mix, like you know, five, six, ten different kinds of lettuce seeds, and you sprinkle it into that pot like you're like you're putting salt and pepper on something. And you sprinkle a little dirt over it and water that. And then like two weeks later, you make another pot. And two weeks later you make another pot. Two weeks later you make another pot. Well by then you're harvesting the first one. And you just cut it with shears. And you'll get four or five harvests from each one. You'll take that right to Christmas. And if you have a greenhouse, you put those things in your greenhouse or you bring them in. Like a lot of times, like here, even though we get freezes at night, it's you know, forty five to seventy five degrees in the daytime in the winter. Even with harsh winters, we'll get a lot of days like that. Sometimes we'll get a week where it's gonna go above freezing, but a lot of times, even in February, we'll get that. So if you have pots like that, you just take them outside and you leave them outside until you know it's going to be another night where it's going to go below freezing and bring them back in. And that way they get plenty of sun and you can keep harvesting. Well, if you do that, you can do the same thing in your garden beds. Dedicate a bed as your lettuce bed for mixed greens, you know, or a half a bed and, and cut it into zones, and sow your seeds, wait a week, sow your next seeds, wait a week, sow your next seeds, wait a week, sow your next seeds, wait a week, and then give yourself some type, put some protection over that. Maybe instead of you have five garden beds and you just don't want to take all five of them that late in the year, pick one for doing things like a lettuce crop, put your row cover over that, your mini greenhouse, what have you, and rock on with life. I did it with a fish tank. I had a couple old fish tanks. And I put them, and I know I can find that video, those videos for you. And those have been circulated by a lot of different blogs and stuff. And you can see two groups of lettuce, the same lettuce in the same bed, in the same place, a couple feet apart. And one, you know, unless it got warm out, I just left the the fish tanks on them. And whenever it started to get really warm during the day, even in the winter, I'd go out and pull the fish tanks off. And then as night would approach, I'd just go back and put the fish tanks on them. And the lettuce that is under the fish tank, is five times the size of the lettuce that's not, and I've cut the lettuce that's under the fish tank 15, 20 times by now with cut and come again, and this other stuff's over here; it's alive, it's not being killed, it's tolerating frost and even light freezes, but it just isn't growing. So many greenhouses can extend your lettuce harvest too. This in the south, this is your time to grow all the stuff that you lament that you can't grow in the summer. Cilantro. So I mean, cilantro is such a wonderful thing to put with a tomato. One would love to grow cilantro and tomatoes at the same time. And in much of the country, not a problem. Here, you plant cilantro even in late spring. By the time it gets any size on it, pff, there it goes to the coriander. The, the seed heads come up. That It goes from tasting like this wonderful, amazing thing that, that cilantro is to tasting like friggin' feet. And the only thing you get out of is seeds, the coriander seeds. But... If you start your cilantro in a few weeks down here and get it up to a nice little plant and put it out in September, it'll do wonderful for you. So think about kind of turning everything on its head. And think about getting that edge on the, on the cool weather. I kind of talked about windbreaks already, but really think about windbreaks. To, to be effective at the place we had in Arlington, the last house we had before our little jaunt through or jaunt to uh, Arkansas, windbreaking was absolutely critical. And realize that a lot of times I see this in the suburbs and urban areas. People have the six-foot high, you know, wooden privacy fence, right? Dog ear pickets, and it it looks like a great windbreak. So they think, well, great, I'll use that. And it can be helpful. But being smart, they think about their solar exposure, and they say, well, I can only be so close to the fence before the fence is just a shade problem. So they get off the fence a bit, and they expect that that fence will be a wind block. A wind comes up over and sets back down on those fences almost immediately. You get a, a wind shadow of maybe 10 to 15 feet off most of those fences like that. So if you have harsh winds, you need to think about either using some sort of a hedgerow, a mechanical wind block like the plywood stuff that I talked about, or something to create a a break in that wind. One of the things I've seen done that's very low-tech but it works is to take a bunch of you know prunings and, and branches and things like that, and basically build like a a dead hedgerow, uh, blocking very close to your rows, and then you know in the spring you throw that through a chipper shredder or compost or whatever. But you pile it there for that time of year where you need the windbreak really really bad, and then you do something with that organic matter later on. That's another option. Row covers, that's one of the great things about row covers. Even if you don't really need them, you put up, uh, like I said, with the PVC pipe or, or a purposely made row cover or something like that, they get some breathing, get some airflow through them, but if the, the wind is coming across them, not through them long ways, because then it's a tunnel, right? then that wind kind of goes up and over, and they get protected. And wind windbreaks are probably one of the greatest things that you can do to uh, To have a successful experience with your winter gardening, protecting from that wind beat, um, you know, as you get later in the year especially. Southern exposure. You really need to think about, instead of just solar aspect for total hours of sun, you want areas for your fall into winter gardens where you get as much southern exposure so that sun hits the ground as long as possible, all day long, warms that soil. A lot of times you could have two plants and you get a light freeze. One dies, the other looks like nothing happened, and you wonder what the difference is. The difference is the one that survived, even a little bit away from the other one, it's Still, you could say it's the same place, It's that there's some ability for that ground to be warmed more. If the roots stay warm, your, your plants that aren't completely frost tender will survive rather than die in light freezes and, and frosts. Now, there's plants that if they get hit with air that's below freezing, they're pretty much done. Right, your 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 tomatoes, your peppers, your nightshades, things like that. But a lot of your stuff that's iffy. And okay, well, it can handle 30, but it, maybe it's not gonna be able to handle 27, 26. But it gets 27, 26, but it had a really warm day first, and it has really warm soil, and you have that radiant heat coming from the soil, it'll make it through just fine. So think about your southern exposure, road covers I already mentioned, and your micro greenhouses. These are your primary things that you can do to get an edge on the cold weather and extend your season. The big takeaway is the time is now. I, I know it doesn't seem like it. I know it seems blistering hot. I know that a lot of you, like me, are dealing with drought. Some of you are still dealing with too much rain. Uh, we've got heat waves going on. I think Mar- places in Maryland had 100, 405 degrees earlier this week or last week. And I we just got our first 100-degree day here like a couple Few days ago, now the heat index that day was like 115 degrees or something like that. But um, it just seems so so far into the future. But again, let's let's remind you those numbers about where we're headed. Um, the first frost date for Central Texas is 107 days away. If you live in Pennsylvania, a similar climate, you're about 76 days from your first frost. You're 121 days from Thanksgiving, 152 days from Christmas. 152 days. And I want you to think about the time flow there. We're well past the halfway point of 2016. We are closer to 2017 than we are to 2015 right now. And there's a lot of nonsense that's going to go on this year. I mean, do you think these Democrat and, and Republican conventions are a, a show? Where do we get into the debates? Wait until we get into the debates. I bet you another thing, WikiLeaks, I bet you this whole thing with, uh, I know this doesn't seem like guarding, but give me a minute here. I know the whole thing with uh, Wasserman Schultz's emails and stacking the deck for Hillary Clinton is all big news right now. I bet you when we get closer to the election, there's another shoe dropping from WikiLeaks. Uh, My instinct is there'll be direct communication between the two about it that will be released, and that will lead, or from someone in Hillary's camp, and that will be a whole new, listen, I'd rather be outside gardening when all that crap's going on. If you think voting makes a difference and you go vote for cathartic reasons, God bless you for it, I would die for your right to be able to do that. But in the end, you already know who and what you're going to vote for. Wouldn't it make more sense, since you already know that, even if you're going to participate? Go participate then. And if something major happens, if WikiLeaks drops another giant bomb or something like that, someone will tell you. you know, you'll know, you know. You won't be able to hide from it. Don't you think it makes sense to put in another couple garden beds to make those investments? Or even if it's not gardening, to start thinking about where you want to expand your trees next. You know another great thing for fall is planting trees. It's the best time of year to plant trees and bushes and shrubs and perennials. Is in the fall, so that they go dormant, and all of that sugar from the leaves drops into the roots, and the roots are growing all through that late fall, and then they go completely dormant in winter, and then all through early spring before you see the buds break, those roots are establishing. So, doesn't it make sense to start saying where do I need a sheet mulch next? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be getting animals this spring or this fall, setting that up doesn't all that make more sense? than worrying about convincing your friend on Facebook to vote for Trump or Hillary or Johnson or Stein or whoever the hell else is running, Spearco, right, to vote for me? Don't vote for me. That's my campaign. I'm running for president. Don't vote for me because I'll tell you the truth and you don't want the truth. Well, the truth, maybe you do want the truth if you listen to the show. The truth is you're better off growing food for your family. The truth is you're better off improving your health. The, the truth is you're better off improving your diet. The truth is you're better off getting outside and getting exercise and getting sunshine on your skin. Going swimming somewhere with your kids and enjoying them while they're still kids. Because next thing you see, it's 100 and what days to till, till 152 days to Christmas. As it's, it's quick as that's going to come, you, you people with 7 and 8 year old kids, you're going to turn around and they're going to be 26 and married with two kids of their own. That's what's going to happen. So you can waste it on all this crap that you really don't control, where you can focus on what you do control, the dirt under your feet and in your backyard. That you have control over. And I'm going to tell you, man, my 5-year-old grandson, when he pulls a carrot out of the ground, he gets freaking excited about it. It's a big deal. When he finds a duck egg, he's happy. Man, he's excited when he finds a duck egg. When he finds a duck egg with a crack in it or whatever that can be broken so the dog can eat and he can slam it into a rock, then he's really happy. He's so happy we have to make sure he doesn't just pick up every egg he finds and crack. But c- people don't think kids are interested in this stuff. That's because we've insulated children from it, and we, we they don't understand it, and they don't see it. People say kids won't eat their vegetables. You get a kid to grow his vegetables and pick it by himself, he'll eat it. He'll ask you when you can eat it, when you can eat it again. I don't blame kids for not wanting to eat vegetables that come in a frozen cube from the supermarket. I don't blame them at all. Overcooked, boiled crap. You know, Canned vegetables. I don't blame kids for not wanting to eat that stuff. Especially when they don't even know what it is or where it comes from or why they really should be eating it. But I'm telling you, when you engage with them and get them out there... It's a great thing. And it, the big reason that every couple years I do one of these fall shows about gardening, and I start in the summer so you're thinking about it in advance, there's so many people right now that are thinking this. Too late in the year, man. It's too late. It's too hot. No need to plant right now. I'll do it this spring. And then because they don't think about the fall thing, whether it's actually gardening or just getting ready for spring in the fall, the next thing you know it is Thanksgiving. And it's you know election season, so you're arguing with your brother-in-law about politics and crap like that, and trying to figure out how you're going to have enough money to give the kids the, the the Christmas that they really want when they really want you. And then it's New Year's, and then it's grounds frozen and it's snow, and then you know it's it's March, and you're out there digging a garden in the cold, wet mud, and the the beds get no head of steam up with biological activity. They're too wet. They haven't gotten any structure to them. They haven't gotten any tilth to them. You're throwing plants in them, and they're just not doing that well, and you're not sure why. And, oh, the hell with it. This is too hard. Because the best time to get this stuff done was wasted because you didn't know. Well, now you know, and you know what it really means. It means an opportunity to improve the life of your family, not just to grow some of your own food. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work we do, you can support Uh, my efforts by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade or MSB for short, MSB Member Support Brigade if uh, you want to join that the best way to to do it is to go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up there and I really appreciate you guys that that, that do that this show could not be this show without you guys, it really couldn't Uh, for 8 years some of you have supported me consistently and I thank you immensely for that Those of you that are considering joining and are like, I don't really know how to... Okay, look. Here's how this works. You sign up, and then over 60 different companies provide you discounts. Over a year, if you use those discounts just a few times, they'll put all the money you spend right back into your pocket. You support the show. I get more business for the discount providers, and you get a discount that pays for your membership. Most people that I hear from that use their discounts will say to me, you know, last year... Your $50 MSB made me $400. And that's when I'm like, yeah, that's that's what I want this to do. That's what I've built it to do. That's what the MSB is all about. How about a couple hundred dollars worth of free ebooks while you're at it? How about some videos you can't get anywhere else? Um, MSB is the way to go. And we've got our fall workshop coming up, and uh, we're going to do one this year. Uh, probably be October, probably the third week in October is when it looks like it's going to be. And um, MSB gets first crack at it. That's just how it is. And a lot of times, my workshops and things like that, they sell off to MSB. No one else even gets a shot. You want to try it for a month and see if you like it, see what's in there, see if it makes sense. Five bucks a month. If you don't like it, cancel it. Uh, really, really simple. And the other way you can support us, and this is the simplest way, and, and like the, the, the total zero-cost way, is whenever you're going to shop on Amazon – Instead of typing in amazon.com, type in tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And when you go there, you'll see uh, a link where you can just click to go through to Amazon, and then you do your shopping as normal. You don't have to look at anything that I've said or done or anything else. You just click the link that says click here to shop on Amazon for any and all items, and just buy tiddlywinks, playing cards, your groceries, uh, that thing you've been saving up for, whatever it is, and we get credit, and you spend not a dime extra. That's pretty easy, but you can also see all my reviews, and you can click the link to see the item of the day that I post every day. Today's item of the day is actually a book. It's the first book. It will not be the last book uh, for a TSP item of the day, Amazon item of the day. Um, this is a book that was written in 2001, and I was a huge fan of the work of these two authors in the first book they did in 1996 called The Protein Power Plan. And a lot of what you hear me talk about with a low-carbohydrate, moderate-to-high-fat diet, and carbohydrate-restriction diet, whether I'm talking about paleo or anything, when you hear me get into the science, and you're like, how does this redneck duck farmer know this crap? And when you hear me talk about it, you're like, I might not agree with him, but he knows what he's saying, right? It's from the work of doctors Michael and Mary Eades. They are both medical doctors. These are medical doctors. They have worked with clients, thousands of clients, directly for decades in a clinic out of Little Rock, Arkansas, of all places. Uh, they have this book that came out in 2001. Because I, I read and, di- and I, I read and digest books, guys. In '96, I read this. I fell off the the, high, the low carb bandwagon as I got. You know, this is when I went into my, my corporate height. Uh, after reading that first book, and just abandon it. And then, as I came back to my senses, I found Paleo and Primal eating. And I never really went back to look at this because I remembered what was in the first book. Recently, I found this Protein Power Life Plan. It's it's like an expanded and improved version of the original, and it's so much better. It 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 will change the way you think about diet, nutrition, and illness forever. And the science in it is so absolutely indisputable. The the most skeptic person who reads it will at least go, it's worth looking into further, and most likely be convinced that there's really something to it. And here's the thing I want to point out, though. Despite the science, it's written in a very readable way for people like us, for the layman, that are not medical doctors. You might find a paragraph or two that you go, okay, I get the point, I don't need to read about the milligrams of this or whatever, and skip it. But overall... It's a very easy book to read. And it will give you an information on diet, nutrition, and health that you won't find elsewhere. I think it's... Uh, let me just click real quick through my own link. And I'll tell you, the paperback's $13.60. 13 bucks. 60 13 um, The education is worth 100 times more than that to me. And it, you, you really... I, I feel like you should add this to your library. Uh, a lot of times, my item of the day, I'm like, here it is. It's why I like it. You know, It's for some. It's not for all. This, I think... With the misinformation about diet and nutrition out there, um, we really need. If you are a fan of, you know, Rob Wolf, Lauren Cordain, uh, Gary Collins from our expert panel, uh, Barry Sears, all the people that are in kind of that primal nutrition, paleo nutrition world, all that stuff really came up about 2006 to 2012. This was written in 2001. If you read this book, you'll see the genesis of all of that. Right there in this book. And you'll see the medical science behind it. And the nice thing is when somebody says, Nuh-uh, you'll be able to say, Well, did you understand? I mean, what you learn about cholesterol alone and what we call bad cholesterol and the two different structures of it. like There's like a BB structure and a, 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 a cotton ball structure and how that relates to the ratio to triglycerides. And it changes what you think about the interpretation of blood readings. It's fantastic. And if that bores you, they're better at explaining it than me. Give the book a chance. TSPAS.com for all your Amazon shopping. And if you want to change your life for the better, I think this is – and I, I love Gary. And I love Rob Wolf. And I love Lauren Cordain. I really do. And I love the work they do, and I think it's important. I think it's kind of a next step. But if you want the foundation that you can build on and truly be scientific in your approach to reclaiming your health, this is your starting point. And even if you've done those other things, go back to this point – and so many things will make sense, and you'll make little tweaks that'll make all the difference. Um, I flatly swear by it. Again, T-Spass for all your Amazon shopping. Um, next up, let's talk about today's closing song. Uh, th- this song is tailor-made for, uh, for TSP. It really is. Um, it's, this is a great prepper song, really, and it mentions gardens as well. Um, It's by a guy named Cor Blund, and I got this uh, from a listener who said, if you like Chris Ledoux, you'll probably like Corby. He actually played with Chris's son a couple times. And he sent me three songs by him, and one of them really I didn't like. It was just too annoying uh, in sound. And the other one was okay. This one was great, though. Uh, Let me give you some of the lyrics on it. When the oil stops, everything stops. Nothing left in the fountain. Nobody wants paper money, son, so you just, well, stop counting. Can you break a horse? Can you light the fire? That's what I beg your pardon. You best start thinking where food comes from, and I hope you tend a good garden. That's one of the stanzas. And when the truck don't run, the bread don't come, have a hard time finding petrol. Water ain't running in the city, no more do hold any precious metal. Can you gut the fish? Can you read the sky? What about overcrowding? You ever see a man whose kids ain't eight for 17 days and counting? Um, This is kind of a cool song. It's it's uh, it's not going to be everybody's take, but uh, I think it's going to be a good one to listen to. And remember me, I'm the guy that says, this type of shit hit the fan is probably highly unlikely. We prepare because you can have 15 days without support or 17 days without support at any given time, even if the whole world doesn't melt down. But... You know, I think there's some wise words there. You best start thinking where food comes from, and I hope you tend a good garden. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: Left in the fountain Nobody wants paper money, son So you just will stop counting Can you break the horse? Can you light the fire? What's that? I beg your pardon You best start thinking Where your food comes from And I hope you tend a good garden Getting down on the mountain Getting down on the mountain Don't want to be around When the shit goes down I'll be getting down on the mountain if the truck don't run The bread don't come Have a hard time finding Petrol water ain't running in the city no more. Do you hold precious metal? Can you gut the fish? Can you read the sky? What's that about? Overcrowding, you ever seen a man man's kids? Ain't eight for 17 days and count. getting down on the mountain, get down on the mountain. Don't want to be around. The power's gone out. It's kerosene lamps and candles. The roads are blocked. It's all gridlocked. You got a shortwave handle? Can you track the deer? Can you dig the well? I couldn't quite hear your answer. I think I see a rip in the social fabric. Brother, can you spare some ammo? Getting down on the mountain. Getting down on the mountain. Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down. i Everything stops, everything stops, nothing left in the fountain Nobody wants paper money, son, so you just will stop counting Can you break the horse, can you light the fire, what's that, I beg your pardon I think I see a rip in the social fabric, brother, can you pass the ammo get down the mountain